Giuliano, do you like gold? Gold? You mean gold? Like gold? Yeah, yeah, as in AU Aurum. Okay, uh, 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 sure. Yeah, why? Like, that's a weird question. Do you, do you find it useful? I know that it has some good electrical conductivity properties. And of course, I, it's valuable. That's what, I, so yes. But to make stuff? To make stuff? I, you're confusing me so much, mate. Well, everything will be clear soon. The science basement. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Tomas. And I'm your co-host, Giuliano. And today we'll be talking about chemical syntheses. And later you'll see where the gold comes from. Yeah, now I'm very, very confused and curious. And this is what science is all about. <laughs> so today we have Eduardo Garcia Padilla, a PhD candidate from the Institut Català de Investigació Química. And he'll be talking about chemical syntheses using metals, which is what he's working on. So hello, Eduardo. Hello, and thank you. No, no, like, thank you for coming. So... This will sound really silly for you, probably. What is a chemical reaction, more or less? We're starting really from the basics. Thank you. Yes. So a chemical reaction is effectively any process where there is a change in the distribution of electrons around atoms in a way that they bind differently to each other. Okay. Why metals? Of course, they're pretty and all, but... They're pretty at all. <laughs> well, metals allow a variety of chemical transformations that would be, if not much more difficult, um, even impossible under most conditions uh, to occur. This can be seen also in biology as many enzymes are actually metalloenzymes and use key clusters of metals or single atoms in a very specific environment to allow organisms to form very specific products that are needed for life. He has a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Strong argument for metals. <laughs> no, I can, I can, I know there are, I, I remember studying, you know, a lot of enzymes that, you know, they were made of proteins and then they had this, you know, random ions of different metals that, were, that they needed to function. So yeah, he has a point. Yeah. And uh, so, okay. Like now that we've gotten a bit kind of the, the basics out of the way. Um, what are you working on? What, what do you do? So my group has been developing mostly gold catalysis over the past few years, which gold, of course, is not a typical metal one would find in an organism. However, it happens to catalyze many reactions. It happens to facilitate uh, many reactions that are very similar to those formed in plants. And therefore, we have been trying in our group to, um, to synthesize these very complex molecules in very few steps from readily available starting materials through the use of gold as a catalyst. So wait, just tell me if I got it right. You are using gold to accelerate reactions that would anyway happen or you are actually allowing with gold 
reactions that wouldn't happen otherwise. So in many cases, these reactions would not actually happen. Um, there are many that are known that can be potentially catalyzed by other metals, but some of them have been found to be specific to using gold catalysts. And uh, then why gold? Why is gold special compared to other metals? Gold is a very soft Lewis acid. What? Wait, 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 wait. Can you say that again? Has a soft what? So a Lewis acid tends to be an electropositive center to which um, many atoms, many other atoms combined through donation of their electron density. So we're talking about gold having um, a positive charge overall as gold one. And its softness is indicated by its polarizability. So instead of being very, very, very charged at one point, this charge is very spread out, which means that it won't bind very electronegative but hard centers like oxygen, which are very concentrated and almost point charges, but it will bind alkynes, which have a lot of electron density. However, it's very much distributed evenly across two carbon centers. These um, bonds are, are very similar to those that appear in plants and the reactions that ensue from this uh, transformation can therefore be very similar to those encountered in nature. So what is your specific project at least? Not what your lab, but what are you personally doing? So my project involves the design of catalysts that contain gold and also another metal. So the idea is to use the properties of gold for all of these catalysis that are now relatively well understood with the catalytic properties for different reactions of other metals. And the idea is that by combining both catalytic activities in the same place, we can reach new products that would otherwise be extremely complicated to form and definitely would need a very different approach to be synthesized. These products range in use from being uh, potentially uh, good drug candidates for pharmaceutical purposes or even polymers. Okay, so so far you said that you, your, your specific project is to, uh, tell me if I got it right, to study the catalytic activity of another metal so that when combined with the gold catalytic activity, you would create the ultimate catalytic kit. Well, it would likely lead to very specific catalyt catalytic transformations mm. uh, to synthesize specific molecules through specific reactions that you wouldn't otherwise be able to produce. Okay. Exactly, yes. So basically you're trying to do enzymes. So for maybe the non-biologists, like an enzyme is a protein that, that makes a reaction occur faster or that tilts the balance of a, a, of a reaction towards a specific product. That's more or less what you're trying to do. Am I, am I right? In a sense, yes. Well, enzymes are catalysts in the end. They are extremely specific catalysts as the ligand that contains the active center, that is the protein, encapsules the active center, is key in determining what is going to happen with the reaction and determining its 
exquisite selectivity. In my case, uh, the ligand design appears to be key in order to obtain higher degrees of selectivity with the gold reactions. So yes, in a way, ligand design is very much inspired by these protein systems. And what took you to go in this direction? Like, what what do you like about making uh, catalysis with with metals? I have always been inspired by the different reactivity features that different metals have through their electronic properties. That is the the orbitals and how they interact with other atoms. And it it always really intrigued me how combining these metals, different metals together could lead to previously unheard of transformations um, through exploiting these very orthogonal reactivity patterns and then applying them to any system and how all of these complicated interactions could lead to very useful products sometimes or entirely well, fundamentally conceptually very complicated processes. Now, this question could go either in a bad way or a good way, but was there a eureka moment? Like, can you think of a moment where you, at least maybe, okay, you didn't say it aloud, eureka. I mean, no one does that, I think. But was there a moment where you actually thought to say it? Yes, there definitely was. Aha! <laughs> it was in the development of these biometallic catalysts in which finally, after many, many test reactions that seem to appear perfectly reasonable on paper, and they should happen perfectly well, perhaps, if all the stars aligned, none of them actually appeared to work. And finally, as a very separate test, a very parallel reaction that I had not considered initially, a very unexpected product formed, which upon closer analysis, very thorough purification of this product. I assigned it to what seemed to be an impossible product that couldn't possibly form through the very well-known gold catalysis. And therefore, something very strange must have happened involving both metals. Okay, wait, wait, wait. You're getting me into this. I, I need more details because this is getting really, really interesting. All right, okay. So you were looking for something else, right? Indeed, yes. Okay, what were you looking for, like in, in, in dummy words? I was looking for some reactions that could be activated by light. So one of the metals okay. would draw energy from light and then transfer it to, to gold. Okay. And this was a really difficult task, as far as I understood. You couldn't figure it out. Exactly. Supposedly, it should be easy, but for some reason, the system didn't work. Okay. And then something happened. Yes. I, I decided, as I had some leftover catalyst from these trials, I decided to just try with something else. And there, there was some reasoning behind this. It was not just an entirely random reaction. However... It was an educated guess. Exactly. However, what happened mm. was beyond my expectations. It was an entirely new product. And the Eureka moment really came just after this, when I tried to repeat the same reaction, only with gold and only with the other metal and none of them worked. You needed both metals at the same time in order to do anything. That's awesome. So I like, and so that's where your project started because this sounds like what you're doing now, like a reaction that needs both. Exactly, yes. 
So your project started as a like serendipity? Yes. Like you weren't looking for that thing, but you had the how how would you say that? You had the intelligence, you had the creativity, the curiosity to just, you know, ask the like make the the right educated guess, make the right bet, just try something new, and then there you go. Yes, there's still a lot of work to be done to fully understand what has happened and to see whether this can be applied to, to broader systems. But yes, yes, effectively, it started as a very high-risk project, which it still is. But um, thankfully, there was one reaction that was hiding behind the scenes until it was found. So what happened to the, the main project? You just left it, you dropped it. Whatever you were looking, the, the light-sensitive reaction, that just... Um, yes, yes. In fact, it's, it would take too much work to pursue at the same time as other projects. Very short things to say can easily take more than a month. And if it's not certain that one can get there, it can be a good way of losing precious time inside projects. So once I found this, I really stuck to it and decided to to put all my efforts, at least, in, in, into understanding the real processes that happened behind this bimetallic cooperation. And what shape does your molecule have? Like, is it a? It might be like constellations where you just kind of see, you like, squint your eyes, and like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it totally looks like a, a dude with a sword. Yes. So, um, usually, we're talking about non-planar structures, as many of our re the reactions we do in, in our group tend to be selective towards many cycles stuck together, many rings of atoms that come together, usually from linear substrates, which means we create many rings in one single step. And all of these rings become really rigid structures. They cannot, they, they are not as flexible as before. And they tend to take very specific 3D structures. However, I cannot imagine a a very clear analogy to, to real life molecules. However, I have seen similarities, especially with the catalysts. They, they have some similarities to dragonflies very often. Nice. So you, you work with golden dragonflies. Indeed, yes, golden dragonflies. <laughs> Being a biologist, I'm quite familiar with how the normal day of a biologist feels or looks like. And you're something, you're a chemist, I assume. Yes. As a chemist, how does a, like a standard research day look like? Can you, can you describe me your average Wednesday at work? But it, it involves generally going to the lab, as most of my chemistry is experimental, even though I do do some calculations, and um, setting up, possibly preparing some substrates to try some catalysis on. What does it mean? Like when, when you say I prepare some substrate, what do you mean? Like weight some powders? Like, can you get us in the, in the idea? Like you are our VR headset and we are playing chemist simulator. Yes. So first of all, I figure out what kind of molecule I want to test my gold catalysts on. And then uh, this molecule, usually you, you cannot buy it. You have to make it to yourself. So therefore through chemical knowledge, what one designs a synthesis to get to this molecule, 
ideally it shouldn't be too long in order not to be too time consuming. And then to set up the reaction, we find the, all the necessary powders and reagents um, generally dissolve them and run a reaction. So wait, that, did I get it right? So you sit down, you make a, an hypothesis of how to design a specific the substrate, and then you gather the reagents, you put them together, and you have your substrate. I feel Juliana is just imagining like alchemy at its best. Yes. <laughs> I'll just come back to reality. Okay. Yes. Effectively, we, well, we calculate how much we will need of each reagent um, through the equivalent the, the, from the mass. We derive how many moles we are reacting. And through this, um, well, we, we set up the reaction in the conditions that are usually for the design of substrates, we stick to fairly well-known or fairly reasonable uh, chemical reactions in order to get to our substrates. And with, with, after we, you do one of these steps in the synthesis, the product is not pure, of course. It has all of these reagents we have added in order to, to produce the material. So that's where the purification comes in. And it might come as a surprise, but this is where the vast majority of the time goes. It's not setting up the reaction, which is relatively quick but finding a way to separate all of the byproducts or side products that have formed in the reaction. Um, we, we, we have many different ways and tools to do this, but eventually it, it does take hours. It's usually through chromatographic techniques, um, that is by eluting the crude uh, molecules, the, the, the crude products, through usually silicon dioxide, a silica bed, and different products will come out at different times. So separating it and hoping for the best that they don't come out together. Does it happen often that they just come out together? It does happen very often. Usually you have to tweak the different proportions of solvents that you use for this solution to try to separate them as much as possible. But it's quite frequent that one might need even two or three columns that we call to, to be able to separate the products. And um, mostly after this, we would confirm the purity through many analytical techniques, such as nuclear magnetic resonance or mass spectrometry. And after we're fairly confident we have a pure product, we can proceed to go into the following step until we get our substrate. Wait, is it still Wednesday? Um, it, it can take more than one day or, or a week. Okay, no, because I was, I was wondering, that sounds like a hell of a day. Yes, we, we usually do this alongside other preparations of, for instance, catalyst or some catalytic, uh, catalytic trials. So yes, it's a combination of many things. Uh, for instance, for the catalytic tests, of course, at this point, it's very different because we don't actually know which conditions we want to use. Uh, although sometimes in the substrate preparation, we also have to change the conditions. But for the catalytic tests, it's usually a lot about finding exactly what kind of solvent we need to use, what temperatures, what temperature range we have to use, whether it's maybe light sensitive. So in the presence of light, it doesn't react or it gives a different product entirely. And all of these things, we usually run very small scale reactions just to know what is happening, what is going on and we closely monitor the formation of both our products and any possible side products to really know what is happening. And how, this would be a super 
dumb question, by the way. How do you make an educated guess in this area? Like, I obviously you have to know a bit of like what you're adding, but now I'm at Juliano's level of just like this is pure alchemy. You you just put stuff together and hope for the philosopher's stone. I mean, I yeah, you totally you know you, you nailed it definitely. In a way, it's very similar to alchemy at this stage, at least in the serendipitous nature of discovering these very, very different reactions. However, it mostly came from seeing how this initial substrate would not react only with gold. So therefore, trying to understand how I could modify it with some other metal, so it would become reactive. Was that, this was the main aim. And then deciding to combine some reagents that should not interfere with anything the gold does meanwhile in order to activate it with the other metal would therefore potentially lead to new, to new reaction mechanisms. And this is what was observed. So and what's, the, what's the next step? Where's your project heading now? Like it's... Um... Are you trying to find what your bimetallic catalyst does and how it does it? Or are you trying to go for a new catalyst? Like, where are you heading now? So, first of all, I would like to know exactly what is happening in this reaction. So, understand what intermediates are forming that slowly, after reacting one after another, lead to this product. Because... I have a fairly reasonable hypothesis, and I have done some calculations with some chemistry software, which seem to indicate that this has to be the, the mechanism through which the product forms. But there's no hard evidence to prove that this is the case. And also, it remains a question as to whether this can be extrapolated to a variety of new substrates, or whether it's going to be specific for substrates very similar to the one that was tested in the, in the first reaction. So you had a eureka moment and you're now trying to characterize like how this reaction occurs and what are the middle steps. Why is it interesting? Like not not in a bad way, but but what do you find interesting about it? Like what because you can, you can, you sound curious about it. You seem passionate about it. Like, why are you curious about it, basically? Yes. So if we can understand exactly what has been happening from the very beginning of the reaction, with every single step, this could lead not just to a better understanding of my system in particular, but potentially to discover new systems in the future as a, a kind of guide of how two metals can cooperate to get new products. Also, it could lead to hints at how a different ligand, a different encapsulment for the metals, would give better, either better reactivity or even allow for similar transformations, similar in nature, but for different products. So I think always the deeper the understanding of how one particular process happens, uh, the more we can, the more educated guesses we can make for similar. For, for similar ideas, and also the the more of a stronghold we will feel we we have with 
in this case, organometallic chemistry, but catalytic transformations in general. We will know uh, to what extent we can do new reactions selectively and where we can explore new families of, of reactions altogether. Wow, that sounds pretty cool. Um, thank you, Eduardo, so much for, uh, for the talk, which brings us to the fun facts of the week. So, Giuliano, what do you have for us? Of the bye week, we have one episode every two weeks. Fair, fair. Just being, <laughs> just being very annoying. So, uh, I have a fun fact, and I did not forget at all to prepare a fun fact for this episode. I would never do that. Anyway, I want, I have one now. Are you guys familiar with the herb coriander? Yeah, yeah. or cilantro, as other uncivilized people call it, right? Anyway, the point is, do you guys like it? Do you guys like coriander? Yeah, yeah. Basic ingredient in Latin American cuisine. Eduardo? I really like it too, yes. Okay, uh, but are you aware of the fact that a big chunk of the world population hates it, including myself? For some people, uh, coriander actually tastes like soap. And I actually experienced that myself. I first find out that there was something that I hated in food, and then I found out it had a name. And now that's my nemesis forever. Anyway, point is, it might be, it might sound like something absolutely useless, but there is some, there has been some serious science going on to try to understand why some people love it, whereas other people just just hate it. Many people already know that, or at least think, that there is some genetic component. In fact, um, according to, uh, I think, according to my source here is Nature, uh, there was this um, group of researchers. Basically, they analyzed the preferences of coriander in twins, in, in monozygote uh, twins, which share 100% of their DNA. And he find, found that 80% of uh, these twins, they share the, pre the same preference, whereas uh, non-twin siblings, which only share 50% of their genes, uh, only like share, uh, like they agreed on the preference half of the time. So that kind of led to the hypothesis that the preference towards coriander was actually genetic. However, when he then actually tried to see the, um, tried to go and look at what specific gene was that uh, was causing this he basically found a, like not one of course that's usually the case in biology nothing is that simple so what he found is like a cluster of olfactory receptor genes for the non-technical people like olfactory receptor genes means basically gene that encode for proteins that allow you to smell specific things um one of these ones is called or6a2 because of course, genes, you can't call them Peter, or I would, but. Brief parenthesis, one, a professor of mine called biology naming, um, alphanumerical self-flagellation, which I think is very accurate. Yes, I as agree. a dyslexic myself, um, I can hardly ever remember any gene names, except when they have funny names. Exactly. So, so kudos to, whoever called um whoever came up with sonic the hedgehog and the whole hedgehog family and smaug yeah we're drifting mate we don't have much time 
There's a gene called Mrs. Stinkywinkle, and I will leave you with that. Okay, thank you. So this gene is not called Mrs. Stinkywinkle. It's called OR6A2. It has a boring name. Anyway, it seems to be the one causing this because, and here it was Eduardo's ability and skills in chemistry should help. This receptor, this receptor is highly sensitive to hal to aldehyde chemicals. I'll leave you to that. I have no idea what that means. Anyway, this is uh, these molecules are the ones that contribute to the flavor of coriander. So this has, you know, people always take this as a justification for not liking coriander, saying, okay, see, I have this mutation in the OR6A2 gene. However, although the author himself, he, you know, he said that the, the, um, the heritability of this trait is still quite low. So although many people, including myself, they usually justify ourselves uh, in not liking current as saying that we have a condition or we have a mutation, you know, to make it sound justified or legit. Actually, the, um, this um, Ericsson guy himself, he said that uh, according to him, to his team, less than 10% of coriander preference is actually due to you know, genetic variants. And um, so, yeah, the fun fact is most people think that coriander aversion is genetic. R truth is, we're not that sure. I, I love that there's this much research going on. Actually, that was the fun fact. The fact that actually science is working on this. It's, it's essentially a lot of research for a lame excuse. <laughs> Again, as I said in, in, the, in the preparation of, the, of this episode, I love the fact like science is done because you find a question fascinating. So kudos to these people. They're fascinated by coriander. Oh. Eduardo, what do you think of this as a chemist? Wherever they give me a good dish with coriander, that's unbeatable. I hate you. Anyways, um, thank you so much for coming, Eduardo. It was lovely to have you. Um, thank you, Giuliano. Even though you like coriander. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and thank you to our audience for joining us today. Don't forget to like us, follow us, rate us on Apple Podcast, and share it with your friends. Bye. Bye. The science if you liked this episode, give it a thumbs up. Rate us on the podcasting app of your choice. And don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at